start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the Gospel of Matthew. Father, we do thank you again for this time together. I thank you for this chance to be, uh, Father, with you and your word and with this church, uh, just my, my friends and, and your friends. Thank you for an opportunity to hear from you. We just pray that your spirit would guide and direct as we look at your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what do angels, religious scandals, a bunch of women, a group of soldiers all have in common? Matthew chapter 28. It sounds like an odd mix, but it's the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we spent almost two years going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've read about John the Baptist. We've read about Jesus and the disciples. We've read about religious leaders and crowds and soldiers. And when you come to the end of a book, you kind of expect there to be some conclusions, right? You expect some things to kind of get tied up, maybe some loose ends that were along the way that you're like, okay, what about this? We need to resolve this. How many of you like a book that's unresolved? at the end of it. How many of you like a song that's unresolved? We do this with the music team. We'll have a song, and instead of playing that last closing note, we'll kind of leave it hanging, and I have music pe people on the music team that just like twitch. You have to resolve it. You have to resolve it, right? We like things to be resolved. We want everything packaged up. Well, I have good news, and I have bad news for you this morning, then. The good news is some of the things that Matthew has been teaching kind of get resolved in chapter 28, and other things are left wide open. Um, they're going to be things that we're going to have to look at at a different time in a different book. So let's just start by jumping right into Matthew 28. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of Matthew 28. I know David covered some of these verses. I don't have much on the screen this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28 or tap in your app and get over there to Matthew 28. And we're going to kind of camp out there most of the time. So Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. And he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards were so shaken by fear that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. So come and see the place where he lay, and then go and quickly tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And just then Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, but go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Again, David covered a lot of the significance of the resurrection last week, and if you missed that, you can catch it online, and we encourage you to do that. Right now, I want to have us focus on some of the main characters of Matthew 28, because they give us some insights into what Matthew wants to wrap up here. Who are the main characters that we have introduced right here? You got to do it louder so I can hear you. Yep, we have Mary and Mary. Who else? Well, the whole angel guy, right? Yeah, so the angel. What else? Who else? The soldiers or the guards? Yep. The disciples are mentioned. Anybody else significant here? Jesus. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're waiting for the church answer. Yeah, Jesus. You can say Jesus to almost any question and you get it right in church, right? So Jesus was there. So I want to focus on each of these groups of, of people that are involved in this narrative at the end. I want to start with this group of women. 
On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, some women got up to go to the tomb. And, and different gospel accounts present different women's names. Matthew focuses on two of them, Mary and Mary. And if we look back a little bit, going back to, in our Bibles, it'd be chapter 27. Remember, Matthew didn't write in chapters and verses. It was one scroll or letter that he wrote. But if you go back just a little bit to chapter 27, in verse 55, it said that the women were at the crucifixion. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there, watching from a distance. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I love that. Um, Matthew never, doesn't give her name. The mother of Zebedee's sons. So notice that there was a group of women, not just a few, but a group of women that came with Jesus from Galilee as he came to Jerusalem, and they were a part of the disciples' group. We often think, when we think about Jesus traveling with his disciples, how many of you just think like 13 people, there they go? You know, it's Jesus and the 12, and they're traveling down the road. But there was this entourage of women that were also along with them, ministering to them and helping them and serving them. And I think that's a really cool thing that Matthew points out about this group. We also know about this group that they watched um, that they watched the crucifixion. So they not only were with Jesus from Galilee, but they were there watching from a distance as Jesus was crucified. And afterwards, the same group of women followed Joseph to the tomb and watched where the body was placed. In Matthew 27, uh, 57, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, had it placed in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. So you have the women who were with Jesus from Galilee and through that last week of ministry, who were there to watch him be crucified, who then followed Joseph to the tomb and were sitting across from the tomb watching as Jesus was prepared and then placed in the tomb and the stone rolled. They obviously knew where the tomb was and they knew uh, the condition that Jesus was in. Uh, he was dead and that he'd been wrapped in cloth and, and um, spices put on him and those types of things as he was placed in the tomb. So these women had been witnesses of the death and the burial of Jesus. It's interesting that Matthew brings them out we have no clue where the disciples are at this point. Think about that. Were the disciples watching? We don't know. Did the disciples know where the tomb was? Did they go to the tomb? We don't know. We know that this group of women knew all these things. So these women were the first ones on the first day of the week to get up early in the morning and to go to the tomb. We read that in chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. They were also the first ones to receive a message from the angel. So the, the angel looks at these women and says, hey, listen, I've got a message for you. Jesus is not here. Go and look. You'll see he's gone. And now go and tell the disciples. So they get a message from the angels. They're also the first ones that Jesus appears to, that we know of, that Jesus appears to after his resurrection. In verse 29 of Matthew 28, Matthew points out that as they were going to the disciples, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, whether he appeared to other people or not, prior to this, according to Matthew's gospel, these women were the ones that were significant in his gospel to bring up that Jesus met with these women first. So I'm curious, if you wanted an acceptable witness in a patriarchal society that gave social prominence to men, especially those in positions of authority, and gave no authority or social significance to women and children, who would you choose to be the messengers of your resurrection? Would it be women, or would it be some important priest or some significant disciple like Peter? From a, a worldly perspective, it would seem like you'd want Peter there, right? Isn't he the guy? He's the guy, right? I mean, he's the one that God's gonna, Jesus is going to build his church on. He should have been the one there, right? But yet we find out that it's through the testimony of the women who saw not only his crucifixion, but his burial, and then were the first to testify and see his witness and to see his resurrected body, that God has chosen to use those that were least in the society to be in the most significant position of all. I think this is a beautiful picture of what God does. But let me just prove that point a little bit more. So let's say, you again, you want somebody who's going to give a testimony and you're going to believe it. In this case, it's a group of women. So the women do go and tell the disciples. And listen to what happens. Even the disciples won't believe the women. In Luke 24, verses 1 through 11. On the first day of the week, early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. So returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them telling the apostles these things. But the words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Now, this is just a hunch, but I have a feeling if it was Peter, and Peter came back and said, let me tell you, I just met Jesus, they'd be like, okay, Peter, where do we go next? But the women come back and say, look, look, let me tell you what happened. And they're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. You're, you're probably just imagine, you're, you're probably a little emotional right now, which is the word you would not say to a woman in that position, right? How many of you guys know that? That's right, amen, right? You don't say that to that woman at that point. However, Matthew is very specific about mentioning that these women were part of the group from Galilee at the Passover who witnessed the crucifixion, who witnessed the burial, who were there to see the resurrection, who got the message from the angel and were the first ones to see the risen Jesus and to worship him. And to me, it's a beautiful picture of what God does. First, it helps lend credibility to the fact that the gospel authors probably didn't just make this up. If you were going to make it up, you'd want something significant there. But God has a cool way of doing things. It doesn't make sense to us sometimes. It wasn't just a story of what might have happened. It was a story of what did happen. Um, 
It also lends credibility to the resurrection as the women would not have had the strength to roll away the stone. And so if the stone was rolled away, it would have to have been done by somebody else. So it also lends credibility to that story. Second, I think, though, it shows how God sees people, all people, as valuable regardless of social status. And we see this in the women in their, in their day. Matter of fact, if you think back on the Gospel of Matthew, this is one of those kind of storylines that started as a thread in the beginning, and it's kind of getting wrapped up here. With the birth of Jesus, who did the angel appear to first? Before the birth. I should, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. The angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to have a child. Then the angel appeared to Joseph and said, no, it's okay. It's true. You can marry her. It's all good. And then the angel appeared to the shepherds. Again, a lower class group of people in that society. Not those that would be considered in a significant position. We started the birth of Jesus with an announcement to a teenage girl. We end with the culmination of the resurrection being witnessed to by a group of women. And in their society, this was not the group that carried clout. And yet that's who God chose to use. I think God finds, and we find this all throughout scripture, God finds pleasure in elevating the weak to be strong and the downcast to be lifted up, and the least to become greatest. And we've seen this all throughout Matthew's gospel, and we see it now even in the culmination at the resurrection and the events after it. God looks for people who are willing to be weak, who recognize their weakness, because in our weakness, he becomes strong. He's not looking for people who think they can do it all on their own. He's looking for people who know that they need to depend upon him. And he uses people in sometimes the most awkward positions or situations to accomplish his will. And if you're not convinced about that, read the genealogy of Jesus, and you'll find that there's a prostitute in there, and there's, <laughs> there's people who are not Jewish, Jewish women, uh, non-Jewish women that are part of the genealogy, and you realize, yeah, God uses people, sometimes even awkward people. How many of you know someone who's awkward? Careful, because you probably came to church with them. All right, so be careful. Right? God uses even awkward people like us. Um, he finds pleasure in that. And it's always been his way. So let's look at the second group, the soldiers. Um, they're a special guard given to the priests by Pilate. They had one job. What was that one job? Guard the tomb. How'd they do? Not so good. Not so good. Um, in Matthew 27, 66, uh, it says, The next day, this was just after the crucifixion. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb may be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him and tell the people, he's been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. You have your guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. So these soldiers are at the tomb, guarding the tomb. It's not a moving target. It's not hard to find. They just have to guard the tomb. Okay, and here's what happens. Matthew 28, we read in verses 2 through 4. There was a violent earthquake because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. 
He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. So the angel shows up, and what happens to these soldiers? They kind of pass out. They faint. They become like dead men out of fear. The women, however, by the way, are still standing there talking to the angel. I, um, I, I would like to think of this, that this is a um, kind of a divine intervention and not just a cowardly cohort. Um, I've met many soldiers who would fight any enemy. And, uh, you know, to have a bunch of women not pass out and have the soldiers pass out, I would have to imagine that it was divine intervention. We don't know for sure. We just know that they became like dead men and they, they dropped right there. Um, so what happened to them? When they come back to their senses, they go to the priests back in the city. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, we'll continue reading on in Matthew 28. It says, as they were on their way. Now the they were on their way is the women. So as the women were on their way to the disciples, these soldiers are on their way into the city to the chief priest. So there's like two things going on at the same time. It's kind of like the split plot where you got going on here. It's really cool. As the women were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. And after the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. Now, if this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. So the soldiers go back to the priests and explain all that had happened. So what's all that had happened? Well, the angel showed up, the stone got rolled away, and they passed out, right? That's, that's all that had happened. Um, whether they were passed out before the women showed up or while the women were there, we're not really sure. We don't know if they heard the message or not. We just know that they passed out. And the body was gone. The body of Jesus is gone. So they go back and they explain all this. Now, if you were the chief priests and the elders and you just had a man crucified and three days later, the prediction that he had comes true and an angel shows up and he's resurrected, you might want to choose to believe what he said, but instead they just keep coming up with more lies and more lies. Um, they basically bribe the soldiers and say, listen, here's what you're going to tell people. We're going to give you a bunch of money you're going to tell them this. And the soldiers took the money and did it. Now, I have to ask, we'll, we'll get to the, the, the lies in just a minute. The priests tell them what to do. And I want to focus on the priests for a second, and then we're going to come back to the story. So they've been the enemy of the Savior throughout his entire ministry, right? Um, now, while some priests chose to follow Jesus, we're talking about the, them as a, a group as a whole. So we're, we're lumping in the vast majority of the priests. They've been plotting to discredit and eventually to kill Jesus. They were re religious bigots that Jesus described as straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. I love that phrase. So they don't want a little tiny bug in their drink, so they strain it out, and then when they go to drink it, they swallow a whole camel. Um, it's just a beautiful picture of how obtuse they were. And we see that in the crucifixion and even in this event here. When they went to Pilate's house... They refused to go into Pilate's house when he was on trial because they didn't want to become unclean. 
yet they were plotting the death of an innocent man that they knew was innocent. They were straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's pretty amazing how obtuse they, they were at this time. Um, the priests hear about the angel's appearance, about the stone being rolled away, about Jesus being raised from the dead, and they're not even concerned. They're certainly not repentant. They just create this lie. Now, they offer the soldiers a bunch of money to say that they were asleep and the disciples came and took the body. So let's talk about this propaganda for just a minute. There's a few problems with this. Um, first of all, the, the soldiers had what, one job? What was that one job? Guard the body, guard the tomb. How'd that go for them? The one job they had, they failed at, right? Now, the second is to fall asleep while you were on duty as a soldier back then was punishable by death. So the priests want them to lie and to say that they fell asleep, which is like giving yourself a death sentence. All right, let's think about this. Soldiers, imagine, we have some soldiers here in our congregation, right? quite a few. Imagine your commanding officer offers to pay you to tell a lie saying that it's in the best interest of our nation. And the lie that you're supposed to, um, and the lie is that while you were supposed to be guarding an important person, you decided to just go to sleep, and when you woke up, they were gone. Would you be comfortable with that, soldiers? Any of you thinking like, yeah, I would do that for, you know. I'm thinking it must have been a large amount of money. Because after you tell that story, your, your chances of advancing in your career are none, right? Your chances of going anywhere are none. How much money would it take to take a, a soldier and have him lie to his own discredit? It must have been a large amount. Um, they took it. Now, let's continue down the lie a little bit longer. If they were actually asleep, and if some group of people moving a big stone didn't wake them up. And they managed to sleep through that, like they said. How would they have known it was the disciples that took the body? You know, like CSI Jerusalem show up and do some DNA testing or something, find a hair, check a footprint. Oh, that sandal, that sandal was Peter's, I know it was. Like, how would they know it was the disciples at that point if they truly were asleep when the body was taken? It just doesn't make any sense in any way, shape, or form. It's an absurd story, but apparently it did the trick. Um, and the lie was propagated throughout the Jews. Basically, there's this, this dissension that the priests want to create. Um, and the priests promise to protect the soldiers. You lie, take the money, and lie. And if we get in trouble with Pilate for falling asleep, we'll, we'll take care of Pilate. Pretty presumptuous, but that was the promise. So we have two groups here that are actually proclaiming messages. We have the soldiers and the priests who are spreading a lie that the disciples took the body. And then we have the women who are spreading the message that Jesus has risen and that they're to go meet him in Galilee. So you have two groups of evangelists, one for the truth and one for not the truth. But that kind of brings up this point. What about the disciples, right? It's the end of the book. I want some closure. The last two disciples that we read about it didn't go well, right? Peter denied Jesus three times. We don't have closure on that. Judas, 
Yeah, that didn't go well for him. It didn't end very good for him either. I really want to know how all that works out. So I guess I'll have to wait and read the sequel, right? We have to get to Acts for some of that, or we can go to some of the other gospel accounts, and we might just do that before we go into Acts. So while the women have many verses written about them, we basically have two about the disciples that state that they went to Galilee and what happened there. Um, We do not know if the women were convincing enough to get the disciples to go to Galilee um, or if they just remembered that Jesus had told them previously to do that. Um, Before he was crucified in Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Um, So we don't know if if they remembered that and just did it or if the women reminded them. Um, Jesus had to, the angel said, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And then Jesus approached the women and said, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. I have a feeling the disciples were struggling with the concept of going to Galilee. <laughs> or, or there wouldn't have been this, this really important reminder to go to Galilee. Um, but they do go. And when they arrive, Jesus does meet them there. In Matthew 28, 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And verse 17 is a challenge. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Did some worship and others doubt? Did they all worship, but some struggled with their senses and what they were seeing and perceiving? Um, The word doubt also means to waver. And the only other time Matthew uses this word doubt in his gospel is when the disciples are on the boat in the storm and Jesus walks to them across the water. And Peter says, Jesus, if it is you, let me, you know, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, all right, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and when he starts walking on the water and when he looks around him and sees the waves and the storm, he starts to sink. And Jesus picks him up and says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you waver? That's the only other place Matthew uses this word doubt or waver. So here they are in front of Jesus again. They saw him, we're going to presume they saw him die, even if it was from a distance. They know he was buried, and now they're standing before him, and there had to be all sorts of things going through. I think we're seeing the human side of the disciples here, very much so. They worshiped, but they struggled with their senses. They they doubted. They, They wrestled with what was actually taking place. And I think Matthew is finishing another theme in his gospel. As we've read through Matthew, I lost count of how many times Jesus looked at his disciples and said, oh, you of little faith, right? Oh, you of little faith. If you even have faith that's this big, the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain, be moved. You, you wouldn't be struggling with the things you're struggling. So many times Jesus said, you of little faith, and here we come to the end of this gospel message. And as they see Jesus, even in his very, he's in their very presence, physically there, and they still are struggling and wavering just a little bit with what they're seeing and perceiving. But this also shows me a lot about the heart of God. Jesus chose to use these men knowing that they would struggle with their faith. Think about that. He chose to call these men and to use these men, these disciples, knowing that they would struggle with what they believe and with trusting in him. I think it shows that worship and doubt can coexist, that service and uncertainty often walk hand in hand. 
But Matthew wanted us to see that the work of, that God was doing in the disciples was not finished yet. There's always room for growth in our faith. Learning to see with faith versus seeing the physical around us is a discipline that all of us can use some work on, I'm sure. But as we listen to the story of the women, and as we listen to the story of the disciples, we realize that God takes pleasure in using the least and the weak, the people who have no social status, and people with imperfect faith to build his kingdom. So what was the message Jesus had for his disciples? These are probably some of the most quoted verses from Matthew, at least in, in my life. They've been some of the most quoted verses in Matthew. I remember in Bible college, every, it seemed like every time we had a missionary speaker come into chapel, we heard Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I mean, it's, it's like the missionary mantra, right? It's just that's what these verses are. Um, so Jesus came and said to them, Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So Matthew gives us, uh, again, in typical Matthew fashion, a bit of a chiasm here. He gives us a theological sandwich. There's a, a theology point, there's a command, and then another theology point. So the bread is the two the theological points, and the middle is this, this action that should take place because of the bread. So it all kind of packages it all together here. There's A, there's B, and there's C. And because of A and B, you can do C. Um, the first A is, all authority has been given to me. And this is an important statement. Jesus said that the authority has been given to him. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, the Satan, the accuser, came to him and said, listen, if you would just bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He was tempted with the option to take authority for himself rather than have it being given to him by the Father. And that's a really important statement. Obviously, Jesus rejected that. Jesus chose instead to be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And because of that, the Father gave him the name that is above every other name and gave him not only the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdoms of heaven as well. This is the anti-fall. This is the anti, the un-Genesis 3, if I could make up a phrase. The un-Genesis 3. Uh, it's a total undoing of what Adam and Eve did with the temptation in the garden. See, in the temptation in the garden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, don't eat from that, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And what God was really saying in that command was, you need to trust me to define good and evil. I will give that to you. Don't take it for yourself and define good and evil on your own terms. And they took the fruit. They took of it. And so God removed them from the garden lest they also take from the tree of life. Well, Jesus had the option to take authority for himself, and he chose not to. And instead, the Father gave him the authority because he chose to be obedient. We call this the fear of the Lord, choosing to obey and to follow and to honor God and allowing him to give to us that which we desire or, in, in Jesus' case, deserve. It's the temptation we see in the Tower of Babel when God had to scatter the nations because they wanted to make a great name for themselves rather than God making a great name, which is what God chose to do through Abraham. In Babel, they wanted to make themselves like God, make everybody look up to them. 
when God approached Abraham, he said, listen, Abraham, if you follow me, I will make your name great. The difference between being given something and taking something. Um, it's also, um, I'm sorry, we'll stop with those. Uh, in each bad scenario that we have with the Tower of Babel and with the Garden of Eden and stuff, we have somebody taking something which, which is not theirs to take. And in each good situation, which is what we have with Jesus, it's given to them because of obedience. This concept is also the culmination of another theme that's been in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus called himself one particular title. Anybody know what that is? I hear it. Barely, though. Son of Man. Yeah, calls himself the Son of Man. Um, it's the title that he gave himself. He didn't call himself the Son of God. He didn't call himself the King of the Jews. He called himself the Son of Man. And this goes back to Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to, to Daniel 7. And Daniel's having a vision about a son of man. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel said, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Hopefully by now you see a couple of the parallels between that and what we studied in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Jesus was given... The, the Son of Man was given a dominion, a glory, and a kingdom. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Um, in the Daniel passage, the Son of Man would rule over every people, nation, and language will serve him. And the command to the disciples is to go and make disciples of all nations. So there's these parallels that keep showing up. There's so many more in that passage. But you notice that in that passage, the Son of Man was given the authority and the rule by the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me. And he meant by the Father. So then he gives a statement. There's the first theological part of the sandwich. It's the top of the bread or the bottom of the bread, depending on how you make your sandwich. I guess we should start with the bottom if we're going to put something in the middle, right? Because otherwise it's awkward. So that's the bottom of the bread. And then you come to the, the meat in the middle. And he says, go therefore and make disciples. The word therefore connects it back. Because Jesus has been given all authority, go and make disciples. Okay. Um, this is a little different than the other commands, right? Jesus said, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, the angel said to the women, go and tell the disciples. Jesus met the women and said, go and tell the disciples. Jesus meets with the disciples and says, go and make new disciples. There's a bit of a shift here, a little bit of a shift here. And this is what we often refer to as what? What's the title for this? The Great Commission. Yeah, you've, how many of you have heard that before? The Great Commission. Oh, like you expect like rays to come down from heaven when you say it. The Great Commission. What I like about the idea of the Great Commission is that it is a co-mission. We often lose sight of that word, but it is a co-mission, a mission that we share with Jesus to reconcile people to God. What I don't like about this concept is when you add the word great before it, somehow 
we seem to connect it to a chosen few superheroes of the faith or to professional missionaries, right, who go and do this work. There's a book, and I think by Dan Spader, and I think he titles this more aptly, he calls it the Everyday Commission. And I really like that title because it's not a, a single special event for a superhero people. It's a message for all disciples, past, present, and future of Jesus, to go and make more disciples. It is the great commission, but it's really the everyday commission. It's the commission for every follower of Jesus Christ, every student of Jesus Christ. And it's not just about going and telling evangelism, nor is it just about baptizing and teaching. It's about both and so much more. And while often when you hear the Great Commission, we focus on the evangelism, but evangelism without discipleship is horrible. It's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. But let me say this, teaching and discipleship without evangelism is equally as tragic. Now, in, in most of us, for most of us, if we're teachers, we like the teaching side and it's hard for us to, to focus on evangelism, but we need to. Um, we really need to. And it's not just about making disciples in the people groups that we're comfortable with. Jesus said to a group of Jewish men, go and make disciples of all nations. That would be uncomfortable. That would be really uncomfortable. So what does it mean to go and, and make disciples? So the Jews were a special people with a special city. They even had a special temple with the presence of God in it, right? They had the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God um, would fill the temple. People would come to Jerusalem to meet God. Matter of fact, they, they came to Jerusalem to talk to Solomon, and when they were done, they glorified God, even rulers of other nations. They would come to Jerusalem to experience God's people and experience the God of the Jews. They would come and see. The command to the followers of Jesus is to go and make. It's to go and make. We're not called to be content with just letting people come to us. There's nothing wrong with people coming and seeing what God has done. I love it when people who don't know God show up at a church meeting like this where we get together and we talk about God's word and they see people who are sincere about following God and loving God and trying to live for God because I think that's a great testimony and witness. But, it, but we can't be content with just, okay, we're here, come find us. We're also told to go and to make. So we're to be in the active moving out to reach people, to share the good news of God with them. Um, so what does that look like? What does it look like to go and make disciples? Well, if we were to follow Jesus' example from the Gospel of Matthew, when he's telling his disciples to go and make disciples, we have 27 chapters of what it looks like to make disciples. You can't boil it down to a three-point disciple-making process. You really can't. It's about a lifestyle of investing in people for the gospel's sake. And that's going to look different for every one of us, right? Every church is going to be different. Every individual is going to be different. But here's some things we notice from Jesus' life. He associated with people. He hung out with them. He ate meals with people, some of which were his close friends. And others were pretty scandalous. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, not just sinners, but notorious sinners, right? He associated with people who needed 
him. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, right? It's not the righteous that need a physician, but the sick. He came and associated with people that needed to know him. He loved people unconditionally. Now, in our culture, this has been misinterpreted greatly. The modern church has misinterpreted loving unconditionally with accepting whatever lifestyle people choose to live, whether it honors God or not, and saying, oh, that's okay. But that's not what we find even in Matthew's gospel. Loving someone unconditionally is so much greater than that. It means being willing to show people when they are not honoring God and holding God's standard high enough that they can learn about the God that loves them and how to love the way God has intended. It means loving sacrificially, but it also means teaching them to obey all things that they learned from Christ as we read in that Matthew passage. Loving unconditionally does not mean a a blank check for anybody that lives any way that they want and to say, okay, you, you can be a Jesus person. If somebody's living in sin, we have to love them enough to show them that. Prayerfully, carefully. But at the same time, We can't be so standoffish that we don't want to be around them. We have to love them, period. We have to love them. We have to teach them the truth. And we do that through our lifestyle as well as through through just sharing God's word. We have to point them to our Father. We have to help them when they fail and encourage them in their faith. And this is true of those that, that don't know Jesus yet. If you think about how long it took the disciples to actually recognize who Jesus was and follow him, you should realize that any relationship you build to try to share God's love with somebody could take years before they're actually willing to say, you know what, I think I'm ready to actually trust Jesus. But even inside of the discipleship community, those of you that have accepted Jesus, we need to be patient with each other, bearing with each other, encouraging one another, calling each other out when we're not living the way we should. The same things, loving each other unconditionally and helping each other. Making disciples is the job of everyone. And while many have made this the cornerstone of modern church missions, The only way that it is acceptable to call this the cornerstone of modern church missions is if all of us acknowledge the fact that we are called to be missionaries. We make disciples by telling them about Jesus, by baptizing them once they believe, and teaching them how to live for God. And we go in the authority that God has given us by Jesus. We make disciples by teaching them what we learned And we receive the power and wisdom and strength to do this because the Spirit of Christ is in us. And that's that last part of the sandwich. Um, And this co-mission, again, is is for all followers of Jesus. So let me ask you this question. This is going to be a tough one to answer. Who are you discipling? If, If every follower of Jesus is meant to go and make disciples, who are you discipling? Right? Your friends, your children, other people's children. Uh, Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, co-workers, neighbors, your church family, who are you discipling? You're probably going to say, well, you know, Pastor Mike, I just don't have the, I don't know the scriptures well enough. I'm not a strong enough believer to, to do this. I don't have a, a Bibleology degree. Um, I, I don't know if I can do this. Jesus chooses to use the weak and the low in society and even those who are weak in faith to build his kingdom. It's never been about what you have. 
but what he brings to the table. It's always been about obedience and sharing what he has given you and not waiting until you think you have enough to offer. And I think that's so important for us to understand in discipleship. How many of you uh, that are meeting here today have children? How many of you went into having children thinking, I know everything there is to know, we got this? If you did, how long did it take before your dream was burst, <laughs> right? I think sometimes we think, I can't have kids until I know everything I need to know about having kids and I'm set financially and we're set in our relationship and we're set in our faith and we're set in the, then we can have kids. And you're like, nah, you'll never get it all. And if you wait for that, you'll never have kids. Then there's those of us that are just oblivious, like we'll have kids and we'll just figure it out as we go, right? It's kind of fun and scary. I think sometimes we approach discipleship the same way. When I know enough and when I've been in church enough and when I have enough background, then I, maybe then God can use me for some little thing for his kingdom. And yet we're all called to make disciples. And it can be as simple as just listening to someone and praying with them or sharing with them the verse that you've read this week. It doesn't have to be some grand 16-point program, but it's sharing your faith and your faith engaging their life. And if they're Christians, it's your faith engaging their faith. And if they're not, it's your faith shedding light into the darkness of their lives where they're struggling and encouraging them and, and teaching them about the God that you know. So we're all called to be disciple makers and God uses the least, you and me, with imperfect faith like you and me to build his kingdom by making new disciples. And then he ends with, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The last piece of bread in the sandwich is that we, as we go and make disciples, the spirit of Christ is with us. And Matthew ties yet another thread of the gospel together and wraps it up at the end of this book. When Jesus arrived, he declared that he was Emmanuel, which means God with us. God hadn't been with mankind like that since the garden. And though the tabernacle was set up and the system of, of sacrifices was set up to allow people to get close to God, and though the temple was set up so that people could be close to God, when Jesus arrived, it was once again God dwelling with man on earth. But now he's gone. He's crucified and he's risen. Did we lose Emmanuel, God with us? Jesus says, no, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. We have God's spirit with us the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, with us. God remains with us. So as we go make disciples in the authority that Jesus has given us, we have the power and the strength of Christ and the wisdom of Christ to lead us and to, to guide us in that process. So as we wrap up today, I'm encouraged that Matthew did wrap up some of the loose ends. I still struggle that there's things that we don't know about, like Peter's still hanging out there. and we, Like, what happened with Peter? Where'd all the zombies go? The people that are walking around the city, right? Yeah, like, what happened to them, right? Uh, there's so many things that we just don't know. What we do know, though, is Matthew is focusing at the end of this book that those that are religious and that form religion in their own eyes will do whatever they can to oppose the truth of what God says. And we can expect that type of opposition and persecution even today. Those that want to protect their world that's apart from God's world and to create religions that are in their image and not in the image of God, of the God of the universe, 
will be opposed to whatever the people of God try to do and the message of Jesus Christ. I think one of the probably most recent relevant situations of that um, is this new version of Genesis that came out where PETA used an AI bot to rewrite the book of Genesis to be vegan friendly. Please don't buy it because you're supporting PETA if you do. But yes, um, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, when, when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain, he didn't offer a ram as a sacrifice. He, he adopted a pet. I mean, it just gets crazy. And what they're trying to do is to discredit the message of the gospel, saying that the God of the Bible would never do anything as cruel as offer up an animal as a sacrifice. Well, let me tell you something. The God of the Bible offered up his own son for your sins and mine. How much love is that? Is that cruel? We can expect that those that try to protect their world and that don't believe in the God of the universe and his message and his way of doing things will oppose it and will find ways to subvert it by telling lies and propagating lies. That's going to happen. Don't be discouraged. Because no matter how the lies propagated, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ propagated even more, which is why we're still here today. And God has chosen, and this is what encourages me, to use insignificant people with imperfect faith to accomplish his work of making disciples and building his kingdom even today. And that includes you and it includes me. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your amazing mercy and grace. Thank you that you choose to use your imperfect creation to accomplish your perfect work. Thank you that in spite of knowing all of our imperfections and faults and weaknesses, you've chosen to love us and to use us. I'm so grateful, Father, that you have allowed us to be a part of your mission. And I ask that you would forgive us for the times that we fail to share that mission with others, that we fail to share about the love of Jesus with the people around us. Open up our eyes to the mission field that you have for each one of us that are your followers. And Father, help us to push away the lies that you can't use us and to be faithful to be disciple makers around us. Help us to share what you've been doing in our lives and to trust you to do that work. Help us to lean upon you for our understanding and for our wisdom. Help us to go out in your authority and in your power and in your name to do your work while we're on this earth. God, you've blessed us with a good day each day. And you've put us on this earth to do your work. So help us, Father, to do it in a way that brings glory to you. And we thank you for the joy that we know we'll experience in the process. Amen.